know, I think most everyone here, um, a lot of old friends that I miss seeing. Uh, I get, used to get to see regularly on Sundays, and I don't get to see as much anymore. But a lot of new faces, and for the new faces, uh, I'm Robert Cunningham, and uh, one of the pastors of the whole thing that is TCPC Marshalls, the downtown pastor. And um, I'm uh, still connected to you for a few more months until you become your own uh, particularized church. Technically, I suppose I am, they got my title here as head pastor. So I suppose that you don't even know your head pastor, but that's me, uh, which I don't know if that's healthy, but uh, that's, why, that's why you got to particularize, right? That's why you got to become your own deal. Um, but anyway, it's just, it's just, it blesses me so much to be here and to see what the Lord uh, has done. And uh, I've been with this, this movement here every step of the way, and it's just, it's just awesome. So uh, thank you for your commitment to this church. Thank you for uh, you, the way you have loved Marshall and Jenna and, and all of that. I just, I just love this place. So uh, this is John 16, 25 to 32. At our main campus, we are going through the Upper Room Discourse which is um, a section of scripture, John 13 through 17. It is the longest section where we get let in on a conversation of Jesus and his disciples on the night when he was betrayed uh, before his death. This is an incredibly intimate moment, and our church, the main campus, for a year and a half, have just been living in that conversation between Jesus and his disciples, and we're almost uh, finishing that up. We have one more week. Um, and uh, Justin asked that I preach this passage in particular uh, for you. Um, make of that what you will. I don't, I don't know if he thinks you need this or not. I don't know um, what's behind that. But this is the sermon he chose uh, for me to preach this evening. It's from John 16, 25 through 32. It's there printed um, in your bulletin. And I guess, do you all put it up there too? Or no? No. Okay. That's okay. Okay. Uh, Here we go. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. The word of the Lord. Our Lord, we gather this evening as a very, very hungry people. Man does not live on bread alone, but by the word of God. And our souls are hungry for your word. We are struggling. We need your word to encourage us. We are arrogant. We need your word to humble us. We are downcast. We need your word to lift us up. We are blind. We need your word to convict us. We are um, in so many ways desperate 
and we need your word to feed us. And so we ask that you would do that this evening. Uh, We do believe in your sovereignty. We do believe in your providence, which means we do believe that you wanted every single person that is here this evening to be here for a reason, and that you are about to speak to them as only you can speak, not by my words, but by using my words to press in where they need your voice. Be faithful, as you always are, to the preaching of your word. Give me strength to honor you, Jesus, in the way I tell it. For your name and for those who have gathered this evening, we pray. Amen. It's hard to, it's hard to um, jump in to a series um, with you a little context. Jesus is... Um, He's in, he's in this discourse with his disciples, but the discourse is confusing them. He is talking about things, and they don't really understand what he's saying or the implications of what he's saying. He's trying to communicate things, and they can't follow him. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of unrest. There's a lot of anxiety in the room. What's going on? What's happening? And it's, it's, it's only in this passage where Jesus gets really plain and really clear so that they can actually understand, and they think... That's what they need, but his point is actually, no, that's not what you need. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. Is God enough? Uh, Because he doesn't promise us anything else except for himself. Uh, I'll introduce it this way. A few weeks ago, uh, a few weeks ago, we we, we were given this puzzle. In fact, I think, is Veronica here? Hi, Veronica. Veronica came over to our house to babysit. And she brought this puzzle, not like a you-put-pieces-together puzzle, like a, like a, I don't know what you call them. What would you call it? It's like a riddle puzzle thing where you have to, like, make all these shapes fit together and all stuff. It's, it, it, it made me sin. It was so hard. It was, it, was, uh, it was incredibly frustrating. Well, my oldest son was determined. He's the total firstborn. He was determined to figure this thing out. And so one night it was time to go to bed and he was sitting at our table trying to figure out and make this puzzle work. And, um, and it was time to go to bed and I, I said, Holt, you need, you, need to, you need to go to bed. You got to stop with the puzzle. You need to go to bed. He's like, no, no, I'm really close. I'm really close. I said, no, you got to go to bed. He said, no, I'm really close. I'm going to get it. And I just, I was frustrated. At the end of, you know, it was the end of the night. I was ready to go to bed. I was like, Holt, you're never going to figure it out, kid. Okay. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. I hate to crush your dreams. You're not going to figure this out. And he said, no, I really, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I said, I'll make a deal with you. I'm going to put 10 minutes on the timer. If you figure this thing out by the time the timer goes off, you are in control of this house for a week. Y'all know where this is going. If you don't, I'm always in control of this house, but I'm like militarily in control of this house for a week. Whatever I say, I want an instant yes, sir. You do whatever I want all week. This is going to be a really bad week for you if you don't figure this out. It's going to be a really bad week for me if you do figure this out. Let's go. You say, done. Set the timer. I quote, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus, please, Jesus. I said, hold. Jesus ain't answering this one, okay? Well... Uh, with one minute left on the clock, to be precise, 43 seconds left on the clock, Jesus answers the prayer. 
he, and he put the last piece in and he goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. His brother goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. You, you should have seen the euphoria that erupted in my house as the inmates took control of the asylum. And they're screaming and running around the house, we're in charge, we're in charge. And um, I said, all right, man or word, what do you want to do? We're staying up and watching TV. I said, all right, you get a TV show. Go, go watch a TV show. They get done with the TV show. I indulge them a little bit. And I said, listen, um, I'm man my word. You have control, but you need to trust me. Uh, it's not good for you to be in control. So I humbly ask thee, my Lord, to, to concede back control of the house. I promise what I said. Here's my deal. I promise you're going to trust me. I promise I'll let you do some special things this week. You'll get to stay up late, watch some TV, eat some candy, do some things you don't normally do. You'll have to trust me that you'll get to do some special things, but I really do need to have control of the house, okay? And, um, and Holt graciously gave me back control of the house. But here's what he and they did not give back. They gave back control but it turned into this demand for clarity. Um, all week, it was spent question after question. What do we do get to do today? What do you plan today? What's, what, what, um, do we get to do more than this? Or, um, um, what's, what's tomorrow look like? Da, da, da. Just question, 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 question. Meaning, if they're not going to be in control, then they want it to be in the know. Because clarity is what we turn to to manage not being in control. And, and this is the dilemma of the disciples, not just in our passage, but really throughout the Gospels. They ain't in control. There's no doubt about it. But what they're grasping for constantly from Jesus is clarity. This is a struggle that, is bef that it, the, the disciples have. This is a struggle that we all have. And this is the struggle that we're going to look at this evening. This idea of what we think we need, which is control and clarity, and what we actually need which is our God. And those are my two main points. What we think we need, what we truly need. Let's look at each of them. What we think we need. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, this is the promise that the disciples have been dying to hear. The ministry of Jesus as those familiar with the Gospels know, is shrouded in mystery. He speaks in parables. He alludes to fulfillment. He hints to the future. He teaches inversely this kingdom of God. Essentially what Jesus does all, all along the way is turn convention upside down such that the only thing you can come to expect from Jesus is the unexpected. Even in the discourse that, we, that we're studying here in the upper room, um, even here is the most in-depth Jesus ever speaks to his disciples. They still are bewildered by his words. And that's the context of his promise uh, of what he, what he says when he admits, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. But then he says this, but the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly. And that's what the disciples want so badly. No more parables, Jesus. No more unexpected. No more illusions. Speak plainly and tell us what's going on. It is very hard for us 
who know so much to relate to their struggle. We just take for granted these things, these truths that we confess week after week. The Trinity, the incarnation, the the death of the Messiah, the resurrection of the Messiah. These astounding truths that these disciples never saw coming, could not comprehend, but they have grown commonplace to us. But imagine being in their shoes, trying to understand what in the world was unfolding before their eyes. What is he talking about having to die? What is he talking about with this resurrection thing? What is he talking about this this father and the helper and this trinity language? They are desperate for him to just speak plainly, plainly and tell them what literally in heaven's name is going on here, Jesus. And he promises that a day is coming. The day is already here for us. We will return to that in a moment. But as a preview of that day, he enters in to the plain speak and gives them a taste. He says in verse 6, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. He's saying, you're not going to have to talk to me and then I'll talk to the Father. You'll get to talk to the Father. But now listen to this. No illusion, no cryptic language, just straight up, here's the bottom line. For the Father loves you because you love me and have believed that I came from God. That is, the, that is the gospel in the most basic form that he could tell them. The Father loves you because you love me and believe in me. Then verse 28 is his mission, his purpose in the most basic form. I came from the Father, I have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. You don't get plainer than that. I came from the Father, I came into the world, now I'm going back to the Father. And the disciples recognize that finally he's talking in plain talk. Verse 29, the disciples say, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Notice that their belief is contingent upon clarity. Ah, Now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. This is why we believe that you came from God. Now what's astounding about that is that's why you believe? This is what makes them believe after everything they've been through, after everything they've witnessed, these mighty miracles of Jesus? It's this? Here's the problem. During the admittedly spectacular ministry of Jesus, the disciples were constantly confounded and bewildered and unsettled and convicted and confused and scared. And on and on I could go with the disruptive effects of Jesus' ministry. He just turned them upside down. The one thing they never felt with Jesus was control or clarity. And these are the two things our sinful nature craves. The fundamental flaw of the sinful nature is the insane desire to be our own God. God alone is in charge, control, and God alone is ultimately in the know, clarity. To use the theological terms, God is omnipotent, 
and God is omniscient, but this is what our sin wants. The lie that we believe is the lie that first deceived. That you could be like God. That you could know what he knows is what the serpent said. You could know that you could be in charge. You could be in control. We are still tempted by that lie, thinking that what we need is found on the other side of control and clarity. And like the disciples in our text, clarity might actually be a bigger struggle for us than even control. You, you are familiar with your idol of control. You've heard people preach on that perhaps before. But what doesn't get talked about enough is this demand for clarity. We can handle being out of control as long as we understand what's going on. The first question we turn to in our helplessness is always the question, why? Why? Why is this happening? Why do I feel this way? This is only our attempt to minimize and manage the dependence that we're feeling. I may feel helpless, but if I can just figure out why God has me here and come away with these three important applications for my life, then I'll be okay. But that's just another way of grasping for control. It is an attempt to combat our lack of control with the false comfort that clarity provides. This is the main theme of the book of Job. God allows Job to lose everything completely and utterly out of control. And then the book, the bulk of the book of Job is his search for clarity. Why did God allow this? Why is God doing this to me? And Job's friends come and give some pretty compelling answers. They're trying to provide clarity. And when you read their answers, they're actually pretty good answers. I read them and I say, yeah, I could see myself saying that in a pastoral counseling meeting if you came to me and said, why is my life falling apart? The conclusion of the book of Job is that clarity is not what Job needs. In fact, Job's questions are never answered. No clarity is ever given to Job. In the end, he just shuts his mouth and simply confesses, you are God that is enough, which is where our passage is heading. But we see here in the disciples the same desperation of the book of Job. And then they actually think they have it. Now that you're speaking plainly, now that we finally feel this sense of control and clarity, now we believe, now we're with you, Jesus. Now that we understand, we're with you, Jesus. But it's nothing more than false comfort that Jesus quickly exposes. 31, Jesus answered them, Oh, now you believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. The comfort and surety that they are feeling in this moment is woefully flawed and unstable. Jesus says, Oh, so now you believe. Well, soon, you're all going to leave me. This newfound resolve that they have because they feel like they're in the know, it's a counterfeit. It's a false security that will unravel the moment it is challenged. 
apparently the clarity they think they need is not what they need. And we ourselves know this to be true personally. Return again to verse 25. He says, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Now, what is that hour that he speaks of? Well, this is where it's hard to understand the context. Let me just tell you, the context of where the discourse is, is that he's unpacking the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the helper as he refers to him. And, and here he says that that ministry, unlike his ministry, will be marked not by figurative language, but by speaking plainly about God. The ministry of Jesus was shrouded in so much mystery, the ministry of the Holy Spirit will be very plain and straightforward. Now, there are many ways that that has come to pass. First and foremost would be the work of the Spirit and the inspiration and formation of the Scriptures. Nothing speaks more plainly about God than the Bible that God wrote, which we have, and they didn't have. But the ministry goes further in the application of Holy Scripture. Individually, as the Word of God is clarified and applied to our life by the Spirit, corporately, as the church through the ages, guided by the Spirit, has done likewise, and in catechisms and confessions and coming together and, and discovering truth. There are so many ways to talk about the fulfillment of this age, but the greater point that I want us to see is this. We have far more clarity than the disciples do here in our text. You do realize that, don't you? You understand God more plainly, to use the language of Jesus, you understand God more plainly than disciples do in our text. You understand Jesus, His cross, His resurrection, His gospel, far more than they do in our passage. And yet, here's the question. Has that clarity led to greater faithfulness on our part? We understand plainly that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. They did not understand the atonement in this moment. They're trying to figure out the idea of a Messiah dying for the people. We get it. Even if, like, even if you're nominally associated with Christianity, even if you're just a good old American, you get somehow this thing about Jesus dying for the cross. We get the cross. Well, let me ask you a question. Why do we struggle with so much guilt and condemnation and shame? You have all the clarity you need. We understand plainly that Jesus is risen from the dead. Historical fact. We know it. They could not comprehend the idea of a Messiah rising from his own death. We do. We know Jesus is triumphant and risen from the dead. Question. Why do we struggle with so much hopelessness and despair? We have all the clarity we need. We understand plainly that Jesus has ascended to heaven and our souls will go to be with him when we die. Why are we so scared to die? We understand plainly the sovereignty of God. Why are we so anxious about tomorrow? We understand plainly the power of the Holy Spirit. Why are we so scared of the world? The answer to all of these questions is that clarity does not equal faithfulness. And that's his point. He says, oh, now because I speak plainly you believe, you will soon abandon me. What the disciples think they need, what we think we need, control and clarity is not what we actually need. So what do we need? Let's close by looking at that. 
we've covered all our passages except for that last little phrase. Almost an off-handed statement by Jesus, but incredibly profound, eternally profound in its significance and power. Verse 32, one more time. Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it is come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and you will leave me alone. That last phrase. Yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. Jesus is about to lose everything, including the loyalty of his friends and his disciples. Jesus is about to be arrested, condemned, tortured, and crucified. Jesus is about to stand alone as the substitute for sin. The slaughtered lamb of God who takes away sin by becoming sin and receiving what sin deserves. Jesus is about to go through hell. But he has one and only one consolation to cling to. One and only one comfort and hope. One and only one thing left. My father is with me. He will lose everything except his father. And to Jesus, that is enough. And so here's the greater point he has for his disciples and for us this evening. If it's enough for Jesus, it is, is it enough for you? Simple, bottom-line question. God does not promise you control. God does not promise you clarity. He has one promise for you tonight. Himself. Is God enough? That question is staring us down this evening and demanding a very, very real answer. Because this is all the gospel promises us. God and nothing else. Is he enough? Or do we have to be in control? Control over our finances. Control over our health and well-being. Control over our children and their performance. Control over your husband or wife and their quirks and failures. Control over your singleness and the pursuit of a spouse. Control over the opinions of others. Control over work performance, work future. Control over successes. Control over culture. Control, control, control. This is what we think we need. And when we lose control, as we inevitably will, do we have to have clarity? Do we have to know why my kids are struggling so much? Why I'm single? Why people have rejected me? Why, why, why? So that I can get busy fixing those things and get back in control. <laughs> must we have control and clarity or must we have God? Friends, this is truly where the rubber meets the road of the Christian faith. We will all have our Job moment. Job lost it all and didn't know why. Complete loss of control and clarity. And he was forced to answer the question of questions. All I have is God. Is all I have enough? We all have those moments in our life where we come face to face with so that question. Maybe you are in one right now as we speak. But even when we aren't in the fire of those moments, the question persists. Is God enough in prosperity or in difficulty? Is he enough? Jesus thinks he is. The Father is enough for Jesus, and Jesus thinks he is enough for you. Jesus thinks all you need is God, and you know what? He's right. Your sin is lying to you. 
You don't have what it takes to be omnipotent and omniscient. So you might as well give up on them and be thankful for the God who is. You don't have what it takes to be in control. You don't have what it takes for clarity. The next morning, after our little fiasco at our house, um, Holt woke up and he said, man, I'm really regretting that decision last night. Um, I said, oh, well, you can have it back. He said, really? I said, sure, you're in charge this week. You have at it. Here's how much money it takes to run the house. Here's the things that need to be done. Get yourself to school. Get yourself to practice. Do your laundry. Cook your meals. By the way, your brother's a dirty diaper. That needs changing. So on and so forth. He said, you know, never mind. You can have it. Brothers and sisters, you may think you need control and clarity, but you can't handle it. Better to have the omnipotent and omniscient one as your father and let him handle it. Better to just let him have control, to let him have clarity, and to know that he's for you. And that is enough. Which is why this is all the gospel offers us. Not control, not clarity, a heavenly father. The last statement there by Jesus is dripping with foreshadowing irony. You will all leave me alone, yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Really? The very next day, hanging from a rugged cross, these agonizing words from the lips of Jesus, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? There is mystery here. And the fellowship of the Trinity remains unbroken, but at the same time, in a very real way, Jesus surrenders control, nailed to a cross, surrenders clarity. He's saying, why, why, why is this happening to me? One more thing. Surrenders his Father's favor. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? You know the answer, but let a pastor tell you once again, Jesus was forsaken so that you will never, ever, ever, ever be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken so that you can say to everything what he says to his disciples. You will leave me, but I am not alone, for my Father is with me. That statement, because of Jesus, now belongs to you. Those words are now your words. We can say to anything, our comfort, our finances, our friends, our reputation, our family, yes, even our own health and last dying breath. We can now say, you may leave me, yet I am not alone. The Father is with me, and that is enough. Let me pray. Teach us that you're enough, God. We believe, help our unbelief. We know that this feels so right while we're gathered in worship, we will leave and we will start our pursuit once again to grab some control and clarity because we think this is what we need to find peace. But it is not. It is a false comfort. Lord, you are all we need and you are enough. If we have nothing else, if we are completely out of control and we have no answers and all we have is you, it's enough. We believe that. Help our unbelief.
Help us to live it. Help us to practice it. And thank you that it's true, whether we believe it or not. You're enough. And that is enough. Bless us now as we prepare for a table which tells us that all we have is you, but that's enough. In Jesus' name, amen.